Thank you, Matt and worship team. Thank you, Dr. Dusing, for those very kind words of introduction. And thank you to Dr. Allen for the opportunity to address you this morning here in chapel. If you have your copy of your Bible, or if you have a copy of Scripture on an electronic device, I invite you to turn or open it to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a passage many of us, perhaps even all of us, know this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. When we come to the story of the Good Samaritan, we come to Jesus on a journey. A journey towards the cross. In Luke chapter 9, towards the latter part of it, those of you who are familiar with the, the, the movement in Luke's gospel know that at that point, Luke uh, positions or we see Jesus turning on a, towards the road and the road towards Golgotha. And as he moves towards the cross, he begins to have encounters with individuals. People come up to him. They want to talk to him. They want to ask him questions. Some come up to test him. Others come up because they want to know what it means to be his disciple. Others come up in active opposition to Jesus. In the case of our passage this morning, the one who comes up, comes up, to test Jesus. And it is to him that Jesus responds with this story of the Good Samaritan. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan, the language of the Good Samaritan, it's language that's known to all of us. Our legal codes here in the United States enshrine protections for a good Samaritan, someone who comes along to help one, or someone who comes along to help someone who is in need. And the principles of this passage often get understood in such a way that some, especially to our theological left, will say that this passage is the sum total, the whole, of what Christianity is about. Yet I think when we want to turn this passage into just a moral platitude, a way of living, we run the risk of missing what it is actually about. Missing the context of which Jesus is addressing. Look with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and Luke records for us, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Gracious Father, we come before you this morning, and I ask that you would speak through your word 
through the power of the Holy Spirit you have sent to us this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is addressing a question. And the question he is addressing is, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some of you go, well, that's easy. Perhaps all of us go, that's easy. I know what I need to do. I need to get saved. I need to walk an aisle. I need to pray a prayer. I need to join a church. All of those are, of course, good things. And they can be things that the Lord uses at the inaugurating point of our Christian lives. Perhaps you're saying, I need to be baptized. And yes, baptism is clearly the profession of faith in the New Testament. Yet, as Jesus addresses this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't answer with any of those things. Rather, he answers ultimately with a story, a story. Consider again verse 25 with me. An expert in the law. An expert in the law stands up. Many of you, if you I'm using the, the CSB, the Committed Southern Baptist Translation, because I'm a committed Southern... Okay, bad joke, I know. Uh, <laughs> But uh, though, if you want to know about being a Southern Baptist, I've got this great book with Dr. Yates. It's called Better to Get. No, no, I'm I'm teasing. Just a little plug there. Uh, but I'm using the CSB. Some of you are using other Bible translations. I know that that phrase, an expert in the law, that phrase is often translated a lawyer. A lawyer, and when it refers to a lawyer or an expert in the law here, it is not referring to what we would think of as an expert in the secular law, as an expert in that day in Roman law. Rather, it is speaking of someone who is an expert in the Jewish law. In the first five books of the Bible, most specifically, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he is an expert in the law the Mosaic law. He's reading it regularly and he is going, oh, wow. And they are going, the people around him are going, wow, that is some good law. That is some law right there that will help you know how to have justice. Everyone is treated equally in the eyes of the Mosaic Law, it shows us what justice is. It shows us how to love God, how to love our neighbor, and he is an expert in it. You can go to him, this expert in the law, and he can tell you, he can teach you what the law says. And he stands, he stands up. This is an assertion of his own authority. When Jesus taught, everyone would be seated. Some of the, one of the commentators I even read said Jesus himself was seated. 
I don't know if that's the case, but picture it if it actually is. He's seated, everyone's there seated, and then this lawyer stands up and he, he seeks to ask a question. A question. He's a smart guy, and he's got a question. Remember high school chemistry class? There was always one student, at least in my chemistry class, who would try to show the teacher the way things were. Anyone have anyone like that in your high school chemistry class? Anyone have like that, anyone like that in your New Testament or Old Testament classes? Right, you know, the one guy who just stands up and he knows what the right answer is before even the teacher even says a thing. That's what this guy is like. He's asking a question because when he hears the answer, he wants to nuance it in some way. He is the smartest guy in the room and he wants everybody to know it. And so he stands up and he asks a question. And despite his arrogance, it is an incredibly important question. Yet when you come to Jesus with an insincere question, don't be surprised when he does not directly answer it. So what is Jesus' response? Verse 26 here, what is written in the law, he asked him, how do you read it? Now notice what Jesus does not do here. He does not seek to discredit other parts of the Bible. Jesus always holds the Bible and the Bible as a whole high. He believes in the Old Testament. He believes in the literal meaning of the text. And so he asked the lawyer, how do you read it? The lawyer answers, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He responds with Deuteronomy 6, Love God with your whole being. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says elsewhere in the book of, in the Gospel of Matthew, on these two, the whole law stands. Jesus responds, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now picture the situation this lawyer suddenly finds himself in. He stood up. He stood up to test Jesus. And Jesus simply responds by saying, well, what do you say? You've done rightly. You've answered rightly. Perhaps his face is getting just a little red at this point. Perhaps he's becoming just a little bit embarrassed. Because all he's gotten so far is, that's the right answer, practice what you preach. Verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked, and 
who is my neighbor? Wanting to show that he is still the expert, that he is still good with God, that he still has eternal life. He knows what the law says. He thought that through his study, he knows a lot about the Bible, what it says. He knows that he, or he thinks through his study, he knows that he is good with God. He's got a code to love love his neighbor as himself. He's got a creed to love God with his whole being. He studied to show himself approved, perhaps, but he was not saved. So he seeks a loophole. He begins to think about his knowledge of the scriptures, his knowledge of the law. What he studied, what the Lord God has written on his heart. And he knows he treats a lot of people without love. And so he asks a question. Who is my neighbor? Come on, Jesus. I should love people like me. Could Jewish people. Not the Romans out there to oppress us. Not tax collectors who are seeking to rob us. Jesus, we can't love everybody. Jesus, I can't love a Donald Trump supporter. Don't you know that those people with their Trump flags, they're crazy. Jesus, I can't love someone who supports AOC. She's a socialist wingnut. Jesus, I can't love everybody. Who should I love? He seeks to justify his own salvation, to prove to himself and to those listening that he has eternal life. He is heaven, but the reality is he is far from God. And you can't justify your way in to heaven. So in response, Jesus tells this story we all know. Verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. We have here a story from the very mind of God given to this lawyer, given to the crowds around Jesus. And it is thoroughly rooted in a real place, a real road, a real situation many could picture in that day. 
There's a road that goes from Jerusalem, which is 2,600 feet above sea level, down to Jericho, which is 800 feet below sea level. Along the way, along this road, are great boulders. There are small little canyons that run off it, perfect places for robbers to hide. We know from the extra-biblical literature that... Um, that, that this was a road that at various times of years would be scarcely traveled. And so it was an ideal place for the robbers to hang out, to hide, to seek to jump on someone. As a result... As Jesus tells this story, we are unsurprised to find this man encountering robbers. And the story tells us they beat him. Beat him within an inch of his life. He is left, in the words of the text, half dead. No doubt with the rocks there, we can picture him being stoned. Perhaps he was kicked. The text tells us they strip him of all his clothes. He is lying there naked. All his possessions, all his money, gone. Have you ever ridden in the ambulance? Or been at the scene of a car crash? Or been in the emergency room? with someone who's been in a terrible accident. It's horrifying. Blood everywhere. Hair matted to the scalp, crusted with blood. Teeth knocked out, perhaps one sticking through a lip. An arm bent unnaturally. A bone sticking out of a leg. He's left half dead. He's dying. And on his own, there is no hope. Friends, there are people all around us who are dying. They may not look it. They may drive a nice car, they may put on a good face, but they are dying. Turning to substances, their families are collapsing. Brokenness everywhere. This man, he is a picture of a man who needs salvation, but does not know where to turn and does not know where his help will come from. A second scene Jesus gives us in this parable comes in verses 31 and 32 as we encounter two religious figures, a priest and a Levite. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priest. Often priests did not live in Jerusalem. They would go there when they were scheduled to be on duty in the temple. 
He's probably just going home. He might have even that very morning been in the temple offering sacrifices to God, offering praises to God, bringing the prayers of the people before God. By law, Old Testament law, at least according to understandings of it at that time, a priest could not touch a dead body. And so as he's journeying probably home, he sees the body there on the side of the road. Maybe there's a slight twitch, but he doesn't want to risk it. He can't be made unclean. And so he just moves over to the other side and walks on. Whatever his reason, maybe he just needs to get home. Maybe he doesn't want to be defiled. Jesus doesn't tell us. He just gathers up his self-righteous robes before he gets too, too close to the body. Verse 32, the Levite. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived. That word arrived in the Greek, it has the nuance of coming right up to the body, and he looks down on the body, and he sees him there. And Jesus doesn't tell us what the Levite thinks. A Levite was a custodian of the law, a liturgist. He would recite the language of the law. He oversaw the rules and the service practices. He's lower in rank than the priest, but still the same. He is a religious figure. And he comes right up over the body. Perhaps he thinks something to himself like, whew, Glad I'm not him. What a mess he's in. What's he doing out here? Doesn't he know you shouldn't stop along this road? It's, it's dangerous. I better get moving. I better get going. I don't want to get what he got. And I'm sure he's just gotten what he deserved. Whatever his reasoning, whatever his logic, he too moves on. Why do you think Jesus tells us about these two men? The story of the Good Samaritan would still be the story of the Good Samaritan if these two men aren't included in the story. I think he tells us about them because he is pointing us to the fact that religious rituals, religious rules, perhaps even religious education, on its own, apart from God, is bankrupt. Think about it for just a second with me. If religious rituals, if going through the motions can make you right with God, then which set of religious rituals, religious laws, religious education would be the right ones to follow? Oh yes, you could be a Christian over here and go to church and go to seminary, but if it's just religious rules and religious education and religious work that does what it needs to do, 
than other forms of religion would seem to have an equal claim. Perfect morality, never dirtying yourself with anyone because you're so holy, so pure in your own mind. Your rituals, your rules, your study of religion will not get you eternal life. Picture what the lawyer must be thinking as he's hearing this story. Priest, not doing it. The Levite messes up, doesn't make it work. Now, in the teaching of this time, it was customary to view the priests, the Levites, the lawyers as corrupt very often. And so there was even a pattern of teaching where it would be the priest fails, the Levite fails, but along comes a faithful Jew. And he's the one who will do it rightly. Yet, that's not what Jesus says. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. It's not a Jew who shows up. It's a Samaritan. 400 years earlier, when the Jews were carted off into the Babylonian exile, those who remained behind intermarried with their oppressors. These became the Samaritans. And Jews and Samaritans would have nothing to do with each other. According to a Jew, a Samaritan was compromised. In the words of Ken Hughes, they are compromised mongrels. The Samaritans would even go on and build their own temple, a rival temple to the temple there in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. And only a hundred years prior to the events of Jesus's day during the Maccabean revolts, that temple was knocked down by the Jews. By this point, Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with one another. They simply loathed one another. One Jewish rabbi wrote this, let no man eat the, eat the bread of a Kathite, that's a Samaritan, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. That is, he is unclean. Verse 33, like the Levite, the Samaritan on his journey comes up and he sees the man. He arrives there and he comes right up on him. And he has compassion. Compassion. Not mere sentimentality. Calm meaning with. Passion indicating deep feeling. He has deep feelings for this man that is there. He loves his neighbor. He comes to where the man is and he ministers to him as he was. Verse 34, he goes over to him and he bandages his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
the oil, it soothes the wine, it cleanses. He puts him on his own animal. He gets off his beast. He goes from where he is. He becomes, he substitutes himself for this one who is there on the ground. He inconveniences himself for him. He condescends from being up on the animal so that the wounded, beaten, dying man might be saved. The next day, he takes out two denarii, gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. This is verse 35. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Man even enters into an open-ended monetary relationship. Whatever it costs, with no expectation of repayment. I mean, I can't repay him. He's lost everything. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life. He's naked. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I will save him. You know, everyone from the ancients like Augustine to Adrian Rogers has asserted in this text, and I can't help but agree, that the Samaritan provides a picture of Jesus himself, of what Jesus himself does. He comes down, and in our despair and in our despondency, as we lie there half dead in a helpless state, he takes us from where we are and positions us to where he is. He is our substitute. He binds us up. And whatever it costs, he redeems us. We return to the scene with the lawyer. Verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed him mercy, but showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. See how Jesus reverses the question? It was, who is my neighbor? Now it is, which of these three do you think to be a neighbor to the man who fell. Friends, we don't get to decide who our neighbors are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you lose the veto. You don't get to look at your Democratic neighbor. You don't get to look at your Republican neighbor. You don't get to look at your neighbor who loves masks and think they always must be worn. You don't get to look at your neighbor who hates masks and thinks they're a sign of oppression. You don't get to look at your neighbor who's going around saying black lives matter. You don't get to look at your neighbor who's going around saying all lives matter. 
You don't get to choose who your neighbor is. Why? Because when you were dying, when you had nothing to bring to the table, Jesus loved you. Craig Blomberg has, I think, helpfully stated that in parables, there are as many applications as there are characters. There are as many applications as there are characters. And I think that's insightful. Consider the man. He needed a good neighbor. He needed someone to step in and save him. Student, if you're here this morning and you've come here pursuing religious rituals, but you've never actually come to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, may I tell you, Jesus stands ready to save you. That you can call on him, that you can turn from the path you are on and you can turn to him. And he will bind you up with oil and with wine. Oil, which is normally a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and wine, which he teaches us. And the supper is a symbol of his very blood. And he will bind you up. And he will save you. Turn to Jesus. Second, there are these religious leaders Rather than being what they should be, part of the solution, they have become part of the problem. How do we inherit eternal life? You love Jesus, which leads us to love others. If you're here this morning and you're like those religious religious leaders and your life only loves those who are like you, you only want to be with those people who do the same sort of stuff as you, who think the same way as you, friends, you are at risk of becoming a religious whitewashed tomb. And Jesus' words to you are words of warning just as they are to the lawyer. Love Jesus. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, which results in loving your neighbor as yourself. If you're like them, I challenge you. Begin to go to those who aren't like you. Establish a relationship. Find that one who you can share the gospel with. Third, there is the Samaritan. I've already asserted that I think this is a picture of Jesus, and yet I think this is also a challenge to the lawyer and a challenge to everyone who follows Jesus to love your neighbor. The point of the story is for us to be like Jesus. 
for us to be those who are telling others about Jesus who came and when we were dying, when we had no hope, came and saved us. Friends, proclaim that story. Go to the one who is dying. Go to the one who is hurting. Go to the one who has no hope. And be the good Samaritan. Be the one who tells them of Jesus and what he has done. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the story he has given us of the Good Samaritan. I thank you for his love for us. I pray that as a result of such, each of us would love God with our whole being. And because of his great love for us, we would respond by loving our neighbor as ourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.